In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 27. God continues to give his instructions to Moses regarding the construction of the tabernacle, and our attention shifts from the Holy of Holies to the bronze altar in the outer courtyard where the altar of sacrifice was located. This section ends with God's command that the people supply pure olive oil for a lamp to burn continually in the tent of meeting tended to by the priests. Good morning. Today is Friday, December 16th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Before we get started, I'd like to commend to you our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. I've been blessed by them in the past when I needed Spanish language materials for an outreach I was involved with, as well as Haitian Creole catechisms for when I went to Haiti. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. This morning, to help us examine Exodus 27, the bronze altar, the courtyard of the tabernacle, please join me in welcoming returning guest, the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Pastor Boisclair, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, brother, and it's a, a joy to be with you just on the eve of the celebration of our Lord's Nativity. Oh, okay, on the eve? Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, these are the days before, well, Advent. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I was thinking, well, I, I had to, you know, I looked down at the clock on my calendar, to, I mean, the, on my computer here to see what... Is I'm it like, Christmas Eve? No. <laughs> Already? No, you're absolutely right. We're only a week away, though, from Christmas Eve and the 12 days of Christmas. So speaking on the eves before, how has your Advent preparations been coming along? Oh, it's it's always a blessing to um, uh, study the God's Word and, and to and, and, and as I, I listened to uh, your previous uh, broadcast uh, yesterday and, uh, you know, it was kind of brought out there that uh, uh, it kind of picks up uh, now that we're in the uh, festival season of the church here. Right. We're getting into that busy time where we celebrate all the major festivals because during Pentecost or ordinary time, things tend to slow down. The The church was growing surely and steadily. Our lectionary reflects all of those things. But now, yeah, you're right. We have Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and then Lent and all the things that come along with that. Uh, a great time of year, wonderful time to be in church and be busy and active with the Lord, but uh, it can also be very busy for us as we prepare uh, to be in the Bible and share that with the listeners at home. But I'm sure you've done your due diligence because we have a lot to talk about today, um, but we're still in this section where there's a lot of detail, and so it's a little extra work to pick out and connect those things that are um, I mean, it's all important, but those things that are significant for our lives today. Uh, before we get into the text, would you like to start us off with prayer? Yes, I'd be honored. Let us pray. We marvel, O Lord, at your careful instructions to Moses regarding the constructing of your house of worship among your Old Testament people. In your word, you tell us that it is a pattern from above shown to your people through Moses. Grant that we may recognize the dividing character of our sins, which have made a separation between us and you, visually pictured by the tent of meeting where your people were kept away from your mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. 
But let us rejoice that in your death on the cross, you caused the veil before the ark to be torn into, allowing us to visualize our access to you and the Father through your gracious reconciliation. Guide us as we read of your guidance of your people through Moses. We pray in your most precious name, dear Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so thus far we have talked about the design of the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread, the golden lampstands, even this tabernacle, this tent, which is a multi-room tent uh, containing the holy place and the most holy of holies, uh, separated by a veil, as you were just talking about, and the altars of incense and that sort of thing. Uh, Today we are moving outside of that inner tabernacle, right? And now we're into yeah. the courtyard. Uh, it, you know, how, anything else you want to lay down before we just dive in and read about the bronze altar? Yeah, I, and and uh, the previous uh, broadcast yesterday po- pointed out the importance of uh, chapter 24. Uh, you know, because as, as I always remember in studying uh, Exodus, that that is probably... Uh, maybe one of the mountaintop experiences other than the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments uh, and the Exodus itself, but where it says they saw the God of Israel. And, and, and so, but, but again, uh, God in saying, you know, in seeing me or being in, in having fellowship with me, keep your distance. Uh, and, the, and then uh, the, the idea is, well, they're not always going to be on Mount Sinai all the time. So uh, they have to kind of uh, carry a place that God has appointed to be uh, to come to them and and that of course was the was the uh, tent of meeting the the sanctuary the tabernacle and um, in that in that particular case uh, it, it, it kind of shows how how we deal with God and and uh, what's interesting is that the word tent uh, in 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 um, in Hebrew is ohel, uh, of course. In in um, in Greek, it's skene, and that's the word that's used where it says that uh, the word in in John one fourteen, the word became flesh and skened or tented for a while. You know, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt with us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So, in a sense, the the tabernacle is a uh, pictures to God's people in the Old Testament the coming Messiah, although it, that's not explicitly mentioned. But uh, it, it, it's as John all, ties together all of those loose ends, and and uh, so so when we are in, involved in all of the dimensions and all of the materials and all of the details of of the sanctuary, uh, we're reminded about how precious the. Um, picturing is to us of our Savior. Right, and we think about these details, and we think about God's concern for displaying glory and beauty, even in the midst of this desert lifestyle in which they're having to live. Pardon me. Had to cough off the air there. Um, We see here that um, it is. It's pointing to a glory that's greater than what they're experiencing in the moment. As they travel through the desert, they're heading for the promised land. So we have this promise in front of them, this beautiful land, milk and honey, this wonderful place, uh, and they, they, they haven't gotten there yet. So while they're traveling, God's in their midst, but then he condescends to them to give them this worship space. But the worship space speaks to his glory. 
so that they get a, well, we might say a foretaste of the beauty that's ahead. And as you pointed out, and, and is most important, it points forward to Christ who's to come and naturally the promised land, which is the new heavens, the new earth, uh, when, um, when Christ returns. So all of this connects together. So even when he's talking about pots and ashes and shovels and basins, it's important to pay attention, right? God's a God of order, and God is giving us these details. Well, he's giving them the details for a purpose. He wants things done according to his will and ways. And Moses describes for us these details for a purpose also, so that we can be there with them and, and see how they connect to our lives. And one of the points that, that you made in the previous broadcast is that God is concerned about sacred space. Um, I think you mentioned about how, um, you know, maybe it, when we were, you know, studying about worship forms that, that we got the impression that it wasn't to be so elaborate or so uh, fancy, you might say. Uh, when, I was, when I was in seminary uh, 40 years ago, um, I remember that uh, they, they put out a, uh, a book called Architecture for Worship, and they're saying, well, you know, your church should be functional. You should be able to use space. Uh, you can use uh, your sanctuary as a gymnasium or as, a, as something else. And, and, and you know, that's it, for a church that's just starting out, that, that might not be a, a bad thing or, or something. But there is a sacredness to where we worship our God, to where uh, he comes to us in the means of grace. And Christ even pointed to that because he did not... Uh, like it where people were taking shortcuts through the temple uh, in Jerusalem, which was a very, you know, uh, kind of like a hilly area. And, and uh, they, they like to take shortcuts when they're carrying water or, or wood or whatever uh, for different parts of the city. And, and he would, would not permit them to go through that sacred space. So with our God and with our Savior, there is a con conception of a sacred place for worship. Well, I am a huge proponent of recovering those sacred spaces. You know, yeah, earlier on, God was telling them how to make an altar, and we see how they're to design these altars in ways that are easy to put together quickly. They can get it done in the place that they were. But now we have this very elaborate, in fact, we'll talk about it today, elaborate altar that's brazen, made of bronze, and these tents that are are woven and displayed these beautiful um depictions of the cherubim and things are done in such a way that they can be taken down and then put back up over and over and over again. By the way, I, I mentioned that just because that part's amazing to me. Imagine having to take down um, everything that's in our worship space and then carry it with us across the desert and then put it all back up and not just put it back up, but we got to put it back up in the way that God has um, commanded us to and, and do that over and over and over again. Um, even that is just this sort of cathartic, real-life act of obedience that you don't see. It kind of imagine—you you talked about the new churches just starting out. Maybe they're meeting in a gym. It reminds me of those churches who, you know, you got to have the guys that show up early and put up the altar and put out all the chairs and put—they do that, and they have to take it all down because, you know, on Monday it's going to be a school gymnasium or something. Um, it doesn't make it any less holy. It just reminds them that these appointments are holy, that they're set apart for this specific purpose. So you don't want to have breakfast and lunch on the altar and then use it as an altar later in the day or the next morning. But uh, you do take the altar, you set it aside, and this has been consecrated for a particular use. 
So holy spaces don't have to be covered in gold. They can just be anything that people set apart for a sacred use. But beauty is also important so that if you are able to, you know, have golden things or silver things or precious metals that you can dedicate to the Lord, all the better because it demonstrates your trust in God and how much you believe that he ought to be worshipped and revered. I mean, there is there is a wonder about how God uh, comes to us and 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 wants to have a relationship with us, a a, a cordial, uh, loving, uh, fatherly relationship with us. And and you know, with our with our loved ones, we just love the the casual times we have together, the fun we have together. But there is also a sense of sacredness that's involved here, that this is a big deal. This is God uh, coming to meet with us, uh, coming to us in word and sacrament. And it, and it, it is something that is, that is very, very, it's a big deal. <laughs> Absolutely. And we, sh- we shouldn't take it lightly or irreverently. Um, but I think sometimes, well, maybe just as a part of the way culture has gotten we I think we've forgotten holy spaces, you know, we've forgotten holy ground. And I think that's something that we should definitely recover. So we are in chapter 27. To keep the conversation going, I'd like to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 8. And this is the description of the sacrificial altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. All right, well, I have to always mention that last verse because we we get that time and again where God will tell uh, Moses, as it has been shown to you on the mountain. And and as I've said before, I kind of laugh because... Maybe not in this case, but sometimes the instructions can get so um, so explicit and so detailed that it's almost like you kind of wish that he's going to show you a blueprint of some sort or an image. You have to look at the box to see how to put it together. And I believe that God has done that, right? He says, I've shown you these things. So it's not just Moses giving the descriptions here or Moses receiving from God these clear descriptions. But no, he he's gotten a vision of what it's supposed to look like. And so now we have a vision of what it's supposed to look like, and it's fascinating. But the one thing that bring, that comes out to me, brother, is that this is not gold. This is bronze. Now, here is a big difference. The, the material is different. Yeah, and, and uh, you might think that that's the case because it must get uh, quite hot, and bronze is is perhaps a little bit more durable than gold or silver, but um, it, you know it's sort of like in going away from the uh, holiest place or the holy of holies, 
you find the the use of bronze in, in like the uh, sides of the tent of meeting, and then here here you have an altar which is completely of bronze. Um, and it's sort of like the nerve center. This is kind of where most of the activity is going to go on um, out there in the in the court of the of the uh, sanctuary and and where the sacrifices will be made. And it's it sort of like a, it kind of sounds like with the grating in the middle, it sounds almost like a, a like a, a barbecue uh, grill or something. Yeah, with the where you can put the fire and then, well, let's be honest, it is kind of a big barbecue grill because you're barbecuing animals on it, but obviously for a sacred purpose. Um, yeah, I think that it's it's fascinating when we look at these descriptions and the material is interesting because it is a lesser material. I, I think the practical side is just what you said, right? It's going to be bearing a lot of fire and it's going to get a lot of use. But I like how you pointed out that it's also visually um, showing us that we're getting sort of farther and farther away. Like the gold is genuinely setting apart those things to be, uh, is extra holy the word? I don't know, but to, I guess holy of holies means extra holy. So yeah, we, we yeah. see that there. I, I do, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I just want to make a, a, a one mention, and that is the, the, the material is bronze. And sometimes, and I know you as a pastor have encountered this, people go, you know, we have these different translations of the Bible, and, uh, you know, which one's better, right? ESV, NASB, whatever. And <clears throat> I always say, well, that's the one you read, of course. But this is an interesting place where the King James Version is wrong. <laughs> now, I know that's yeah. going to really bother some King James-only folks. But the King James Version will say, not acacia wood, but shatim wood, and that's fine. But then it says that everything in this this is going to be overlaid with brass. Now, that's just a small example of how, while the Bible doesn't change, the language changes, and sometimes for a good reason. The King James Version says that it's overlaid with brass. Brass did not exist during this time. The ability to make brass did not happen till much, much, much later. Brass is a certain thing. So it is actually bronze, and, and any updated Bible is going to show that it's actually bronze, not brass. But I just bring that up for those who sometimes will push back and say, no, you know, the King James Version is better. Here's just a small example of why sometimes it's it's useful for us to update the language of the Bible. Not that we're changing God's message, but rather we're making it more clear. Yes, and well, for instance, what are the, you know, there's certain coverings for the tent. Uh, what's what's really interesting is it mentions sea cows. Um, uh, right. They're they're different type. They're a type of uh, sea creature that uh, was present uh, in Egypt. They were used for food. Uh, sometimes, uh, like in the New American Standard Bible, it's translated as porpoises or dolphins. And so, you know, a lot of times when you you had different. Um, uh, musical instruments mentioned in scripture uh, that when at the time of King uh, King James they they talked about dulcimers and and uh, uh, har uh, harpsichords or or um, uh, viols or or um, recorders or you know in other words the the, the instruments of the time. But uh, it's more accurate to say bronze because, uh, you know, they, of course, the people at this time uh, had experience that was known as the Bronze Age or as probably this was made during the Iron. It might have been during the I Iron Age or something. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's it's funny that you bring up the dolphin leather because I was bring, I was talking about that very point with my uh, director of Christian education here at my congregation, and I said, uh, yeah, there's this alternate translation for dolphin leather or sea cows as as it's usually put now, and uh, she was very quick to say, nope, nope, dolphin skin can't be made into leather, and I was just like, no, no, I got to prove that wrong, so I googled all over. Uh, trying to find anything made of dolphin leather. Well, imagine in 2022 finding something made of genuine dolphin leather. But obviously that is not the case because of the way the animal skin is made. So it's just kind of interesting. We don't always have an exact understanding of the materials used because we're so far removed from that time. But it sometimes we do. And it doesn't negate, even if we don't fully understand, it doesn't negate our... Um, appreciating the message behind it, that God is calling them to use these sometimes common, sometimes exotic, sometimes expensive materials in the construction of the place where people will come to worship him, because he wants people to encounter something different than their everyday lives. He wants them, he wants it to be otherworldly. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, uh, this dates me a lot. I, I remember the time when the Lutheran Hour was done by Oswald Hoffman. That was like over 40 years ago. And, and his announcer, uh, his Ed McMahon, was a fellow by the name of the Reverend Elmer Knernschild. And uh, he he has is quoted as saying, for the Lord, the best is none too good. And so, uh, you know, in, in, in building a sanctuary for the people of God to uh, meet with their God, uh, it, the best is none too good. Interesting. That is interesting. Well, let's take us through. We're right here now. We just at the top, though, you should make the, the, the altar of acacia wood. He gives us the descriptions. Interestingly enough, the dimensions are the same as inside the tabernacle. Yeah, it's interesting how they the the the, the uh, did did we or I wonder if it we discussed uh, the um, way in which people would measure things. They didn't have yardsticks or or uh, they didn't have inches and feet or or centimeters and uh, and, and meter sticks or anything. Uh, they had cubits. Uh, a cubit is the distance from your little, the tip of your little pinky to to your elbow, and sort of like uh, the way they would measure things is like on the human body, where you had, uh, you know, the smaller one would be a finger, which would be a digit, uh, then a hand, the hand length, and a span is when you take and open your hand all the way. Then there is a cubit, which is, as I said, from from the tip of the pinky to the to the elbow, and then there's a fathom, which is like uh, the, the entire span from one fingertip to the other when you got both hands extended to to either side. And, and of course, uh, it's kind of like something that a workman might say, okay, a cubit's my, uh, the distance from my little finger to my elbow, uh, but, but then maybe uh, there's a taller and, and, and bigger person who has, has a little bit uh, bigger dimensions. And that's why in ancient Egypt they said, well, the, the way we're going to do these measures is by how a, a cubit and a fathom on Pharaoh. And that's how they, that's oh, how they standardized. He's, uh, okay, he's the standard. Okay. I always wondered that. That's interesting because we, you know, we have standards of measurement here in the country. Like a kilogram, for instance, is measured by the weight of this a particular device, this particular piece of, well, the standard, it's, I think it's platinum or something like that that's in Paris, 
and then it was uh, replicated and sent to countries all over the world, and that's the standard for a kilogram. You have to measure it against that. But when you're saying, yeah, the size of your pinky or the size of your forearm, that's tough. I know modern times we estimate a cubit to be about 18 inches, which, you know, if you look at your forearm to your pinky, you're like, okay, you know, if you're an average size person, that seems about 18 inches. Yeah. And, and, and of course I like to trans, I translate that into feet, you know, so you have to multiply uh, the amount of cubits by 18 and that's inches and then divide them by 12 and then you get your feet. That's right. Well, we could also do it in centimeters, but you know, we'll just stick to freedom units around here. <laughs> and and um, you know, it's what interesting is is uh, in the other uh, broadcast you mentioned about talked about the well. Of course, we're talking about the altar now. Maybe maybe we'll wait, save this for when we talk about the uh, courtyard. But uh, the thing is about an altar is is one thing. I um, in, in it's interest instructive that in our churches we we have altars. In, in our um, in our chancels, we call them the chancel, the inner sanctuary, and uh, you know it's kind of like the question: well, Why do we have altars? Well, uh, we know that Christ once for all made the sacrifice, uh, the the sacrifice that um, reconciles God to the world, and that the altar is there in in a sense to picture that to us. And then we, of course, eat, uh, you know, holy can eat and drink His body and blood from the altar, so that those are the benefits that come from His sacrifice. But then again, there's also sacrifice, uh, sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving when God, uh, God's people bring their offerings, and and so that. But but in a sense, uh, the altar is kind of a center point of our worship. And and I'm just considering what you're saying, and you're right because we really are fed from the altar the sacrifice of Christ that He made for us. In this time, this bronze altar, the altar where they would have sacrificed, it would have been placed right as you go into the courtyard. So you really couldn't go very far heading toward the Holy of Holies without passing by this bronze altar of sacrificial altar. And so this communicates to the people that they must access God through sacrifice. And yet now, because of Christ, we can get all the way up to the Holy of Holies. And yes, there's an altar there, but it's not us making the sacrifice, but rather God feeding us from the sacrifice of Christ. Oh, that's a beautiful way to, to look at it, and, and certainly what God intends. Yes, and, and um, you know, it, it's, it, the, the, the wonderful thing is this is where God has indicated that he will come to us, and that's like the blessing of word and sacrament, that God promises to be there, you know, which isn't to say that if, if God so desires, he may uh, give a revelation to someone, and it's not like we're saying that that happens. It's just that when we want to know for sure where we can find God, we can find God uh, in word and sacrament. Right. He comes to us in a very special way there. You know, we talk about the ubiquity of Christ, uh, the fact that God is everywhere, that Christ is everywhere. And that's true. And people often use that as an excuse not to meet him where he comes to us in a special way. But as you pointed out, Christ comes to us in this very special way in his most holy of holies that we have access to. Uh, imagine all of the people of Israel. They gather around the tabernacle. They set it up later, of course, the temple, but they can't go in. Even the priest can only go into the holy of holies 
once a year. And now we have this free and full access to God, free and full access through Christ to the Holy of Holies, and yet we don't want to go. We don't want to make ourselves available. Our ancient um, ancestors here, our ancient ancestors in the faith anyway, here would have thought that's ridiculous. All they would want to do is be close to God, except, of course, their fear. And we don't have that fear anymore of being close to God because of Christ. Yeah, and, and I think you, you, you really set up a, a very important point. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, God is with me as I'm on the um, a golf, uh, golfing green or on the golf course or out in the beauties of nature. But as Luther asked the question, yeah, God is there, but is he there for you? It is only in the means of grace where God is there for you. That is certainly a good point to remember, and let's all contemplate that as we take time for a break because, uh, well, our sponsor and some others have a message for you. We're going to listen to those messages, but when we come back, Pastor Boys Claire and I will keep going with the Court of the Tabernacle. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Before we jump back into the text, I want to remind you, as always, that if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send me an email, pastorboo at gmail.com. I love to hear from you, and I answer all your questions and emails, and I can even answer questions on the air if you think it would be suitable for others to, uh, to learn. Well, Pastor Boys Claire, before the break, we were talking about the altar and we were talking about the significance it has even today as we look to what God has done for us in Christ. Um, other stuff about the bronze altar, anything else we want to bring out before we move on? Well, um, you know, it's interesting that uh, there, there is the, the incense, but that isn't mentioned in, at least in the, in the initial plans that are spoken of uh, to Moses, but then when they are, when everything is constructed and they go through, you see, not only do you have the plans here in these chapters uh, that God uh, kind of gives to Moses, but you then you have the construction of it, and they go in detail. They go through that uh, Bezalel, who was the uh, their their artisan who worked on that, uh, went through that. There was also a altar of incense. 
Now, it's interesting that incense is there because of the tremendous amount of blood. And, and, and as you know, if, if you have a, a, the slaughter of many animals, uh, it, it probably over time is not going to smell the best. So, of course, incense uh, is kind of symbolized to the people, prayer to God, but also because, uh, you might say, because sin stinks that uh, you have to have the sweetness of in- incense uh, to, uh, you know, take away that, that, uh, that odor, you might say. Um, and, and in this, pr- this particular case, I'm wondering if there are in- 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 maybe the use of incense as well here, because it talks a lot about pouring the blood at the foot of the altar or putting the blood on the horns of the altar. And, and so this is, this is pretty much a, the central point for the, uh, the worship or cult of God's people in the desert. Yeah, that's interesting. We have the the altar of incense, of course, which is inside of the tabernacle. Um, and although there's no altar of incense, at least described in the Bible, near this main sacrificial altar, yeah, I can't imagine that they're not either using incense with the sacrifices or at the very least around it. Uh, you know, this idea of sin, the sin stinking or, or you know, that's that's a great visual because it's so true. You know, people go, oh, I couldn't imagine all that. I, I imagine some of it would smell uh, like barbecue, but if you work at a barbecue place all the time, it doesn't smell good to you. Just like if you make bread all day, everybody goes, oh, it'd be great to work in a place where all you do is smell baking bread all day. No, it would get pretty rough after a while. But then you also have hair and sinews and fat and everything else that comes along with that that people don't think about. And not to mention just the bloodiness of performing these sacrifices, you know, it really is something that we are so far removed from. It's hard for us to get our minds around. Exactly. And and then you wonder how, you know, with all of the things that they had to do, uh, you know, you, we speak about the generation uh, before the baby boomer, baby boomers. Well, uh, that's my generation uh, where they were the greatest generation. Imagine going back uh, the, uh, far this far back in time. You know, this, this was a really great generation because those people really worked hard and uh, carrying around all this stuff and sacrificing all these animals. And and, and of course, they did it be, because they did it for the Lord. That's right. And he instructed them to, you know, there's something to be taught by the fact that when you are atoning for sin, it requires for God's purposes to be just the shedding of blood. And of course, of course, we as Christians have the privilege and faith to be able to look back and say, wow, that was pointing forward to Jesus because a million cows, a million goats would never have made up for the sins of even really one person. And yet Jesus comes in his perfection and sheds his own blood for us. Oh, just how beautiful is when you understand this, which is also why it's valuable to be in these verses in Exodus, be in the verses in Leviticus. Look at how this develops from Genesis through and see how God has set things up because it points to Jesus. It points to Jesus. Uh, Do you want to read now? You want me to read uh, verses 9 through 19, which is the court? Yeah, that, uh, right. I think that we can maybe compare it to a football field. Oh, yeah, sounds good. Let's do that. Here we go. This is going to be verses 9 through 19 from Exodus 27. You shall make the court of the tabernacle, 
On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. And the breadth of the court on the front of the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth 50, the height uh, five cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, every use and all of its pegs, all of its pegs and all the pegs all of the, the court pegs shall, be of bronze. shall be of bronze. So there we go. So we have we the go. text. Have the Very fascinating because we see here more bronze, but we have some silver coming in too. God is very specific in his measurements. Um, I wonder why. I wonder why he doesn't just say, you know, make me a large outer courtyard, but rather he gives him the specific amounts. Yes, um, I doing some math myself. I, I found that uh, it, this uh, court is 150 feet long, and 75 feet wide, and seven and a half feet high. Now, of course, the sanctuary, the you know, in other words, the tent of meeting of the holy place and the most holy place is 45 feet long and 13 and a half feet wide and 15 feet high. So uh, it's uh, like as twice as high as as the the uh, the surrounding like uh, uh, linen fence that makes up the uh, the the courtyard. Uh, you know, and, and you made a comment in the last uh, about a football field. Uh, a football field is 120 yards by 53 and uh, three tenths of a yard wide. And uh, this this particular the the complex of the sanctuary is, you know, with the with the tent of meeting and then the courtyard is 50 yards by 25 yards. So it's a little bit less than half a football field. Just just wanting to make that comparison. Yeah. So we have this court, the tabernacle, and it is pretty large. I mean, if you've if you've ever walked a little less than you know about a third of a football field. Uh, you can see, yeah, that that is a large space for worship, at large to construct for them to be putting up as they travel and taking down, but also extremely specific in terms of the number of posts used, materials naturally of what they're going to be made from. And then we see here this curtain of fine linen. Interestingly enough, this twined uh, linen, you know, I, I looked it up. And it is sort of a borrowed word. It's a loan word in Hebrew from Egyptian, an Egyptian word talking about cloth of an extremely like high quality cloth. You know, we might think of, well, we might think of Egyptian cotton. Well, here it's the same thing. It's this very high quality cloth. 
But the fact that they're using a loan word from Egyptian language to describe it is reminiscent of the fact that even the Ark of the Covenant has a design that's reminiscent of the same types of things seen, say, in the tomb of Tutankhamun and other places. So God is employing these people who have these skills that I believe that they used in Egypt as slaves for the service of the Egyptian gods. God is taking them and he is using their skills and their knowledge and the and even the even the things that they know and he's you know pressing them into service for his own self which i also think is very neat well and 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 we understand from from the word of god uh, you know in the psalms where it, it God says all things are mine. So even though there there is a uh, a similarity to uh, the manner in which uh, sacred places were constructed in ancient Egypt, uh, it, it the the materials are still God's materials, and and so they they also may be put to a holy uh, rather than a profane use in 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 the way in which uh, these materials were put uh, in in the wilderness among the people of God. And also, this this structure was, as as we'll see later in in uh, uh, the Pentateuch, uh, was in the center of the camp. You know, the 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 sanctuary was in the center of the camp. The uh, God, as a pillar of a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, uh, was over the sanctuary. And then all of the uh, all of the twelve tribes uh, camped around this sanctuary. Right. It was the center of their life and worship which is certainly important and significant symbolically, but also very practically for them because this is the place where they would have to, to meet and to worship. And, and yeah, it's right there being in the middle. makes a lot of sense. And, and, and as I say, there, I, I think there, you know, this is sort of a picture of what uh, it would be in Jerusalem at the time of Solomon when, when they built a temple. And, and it, it's interesting that the dimensions increase. Uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem was bigger than this, uh, uh, this movable sanctuary of the, of the wilderness. And then, uh, then you have Ezekiel uh, in his, the end of his prophecy talking about uh, this eternal temple, which is even bigger than, and than the temple in Jerusalem. And so, uh, you know, as, as, as we get closer to the um, fulfillment the, uh, of the uh, consummation of, of the age, uh, you know, it, it, the, these dimensions get bigger. Well, speaking of dimensions, you know, this courtyard is 150 feet long, it's 75 feet wide, but strikingly, there is only one entrance. And this entrance to get in there, this is the only way you can get in, right? We think of Jesus and there's, you know, I'm the way, I'm the door, you know, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way in. So it might be in the center of the community, but it's not as though there are doors all the way around it. People can find whatever entrance they want. There's only one. But what I think is neat is that even with a, an edge 75 so feet wide, the entrance, the one entrance, is 30 feet wide. It's huge. So there is one, but it is huge. It's welcoming. People can come. I, I don't think that is um, a coincidence. I think God makes this large, wide entrance because of his love. He's welcoming this whole community in, but there's still only one way to the Father. 
And, and uh, you know, the, the, the joyous thing, the gospel uh, message from it is that he wants to be with his people, uh, that be, that he wants to be their God, he, and, and they his people. And then even in Christ, too, we have an even closer relationship that he is also our gracious Father who, who uh, wants us to boldly come to him. And, and you know, it's, that's, that's why, of course, he makes it a commandment that, that we are to pray to him. But all he wants to do is bless us. It's kind of like uh, our parents will say, well, hey, uh, you know, to their grown-up children, hey, we want you to come and meet us for Christmas. And, and why do you want to do that? Because we want to give you gifts, and we love to watch you open those gifts at Christmas time. Right. It's, it's, there's a love there that you cannot discount. Well— the end of our chapter brings in, um, well, it's, it's sort of different because we have this bronze altar and then the large courtyard, and then it talks less about a, a lamp, but talks about the oil for the lamp. So it's just a couple of verses. I'm going to read those right now. You shall command the people of Israel that they shall bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before Yahweh. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So we have an eternal lamp to be burning all the time. Lots of great symbolism there, but also the command that the people should be bringing pure beaten olive oil. That's an interesting detail. Yes, and and uh, you know, like in 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 here in this chapter, that that kind of uh, echoes uh, what what is mentioned in chapter twenty five, which establishes uh, the practice of the stewardship of God's people in in uh, bringing uh, the best to the Lord as as a um, a sacrifice. And of course, the purpose being so that uh, they can establish uh, uh, the the practice of worship in their midst. You know, it's interesting that I remember when uh, our congregation, when I was when I was young, much younger, before I uh, went into the uh, to the seminary, uh, that our congregation in Milwaukee uh, put up an eternal light in the church, and and we used these verses or at least it was at my suggestion that, that they could use these verses in, in the dedication uh, or the blessing of this eternal lamp. Now, of course, I'm wondering whether they do, they, they're not referring to the golden lampstand that they have, that this, obviously, I would think that they would use this precious uh, pure oil for the uh, seven-branched candlestick, the menorah uh, that they had there. Uh, but but it, it it almost sounds though that they, there's like this other lamp that is uh, kind of there uh, kept. Uh, it, it's mentioned in the book of Samuel where Samuel uh, at the time of Samuel and Eli because they had the tent of meeting there in Shiloh, and uh, there so there was this uh, particular light. So I'm wondering whether it was a special lamp or whether it was the seven branched uh, menorah. Well, you know, I think I'll say the nice Lutheran answer, which is uh, both, right? You know, <laughs> I think that we have a couple things going on here. You know, we have the light, the menorah, which is inside the tabernacle, but then you're also going to need lights elsewhere. So I, again, this is just the way I look at it. I believe that any light that's being used in the temple 
there has to be light all the time for people to go in uh, and be able to see. It has to be tended. That's sort of the observance here, right? So for the light, that A lamp may be regularly uh, be set up to be burned. So that is, you know, you always need to have A light going. Does it have to be a specific light like the eternal candle? Like our eternal candles in Lutheran churches are really derived from candles of the presence, a candle that would have been lit to let, say, a priest or deacons know that there were consecrated elements on hand in, ironically, the tabernacle, where we would store those things. And so that light would be lit to let them know that you could take some of that um, sacrament to those who were shut in, et cetera, et cetera. That's more where we get our eternal lamps from. But we've changed it more into what is talking about here, as you pointed out. It's just a, a symbol of God's eternal presence with us, which is neat, great. As long as we teach people what it means, it's a great thing to do. Here we see that too, and we also see you, – you talked about the, the first pressings, the first, the best. That's true. It also would have just been a nice, cleaner, pure light, which again has trans uh, – has sort of transformed over the years in the Roman Catholic Church. All of the candlesticks are required to be a majority beeswax. So no paraffin, I shouldn't say no paraffin, but it has to be mostly beeswax. And that has also changed over the years from all beeswax to mostly beeswax. And because it's now mostly, that's why you'll find candles for sale that have 51% beeswax is to meet that regulation. Well, we, when we talk about these things, if we're making them legalistic where we can only please God if we use at least 51% beeswax, probably not the way to go with it. Instead, we look at it as our service to the Lord is pure, the things we give are pure, we give the best, this light is clean, there's not a lot of smoke from it because it's this fresh-pressed uh, olive, and of course it would have smelled great, but if we have this uh, going on, I think the main point here is that Yahweh wants to demonstrate to his people in every way that he's always with them throughout their generations, which is why he wants them to observe that throughout their generations. Yes, and and uh, it, it, it it's surprising what the practicality of it. One time, I tried to use uh, you know just regular uh, table dinner candles uh, uh, because we could we didn't have the beeswax ones, and those things burned down within ten yes. fifteen minutes. Uh, but the the use of the beeswax uh, allows the candles to last a little bit longer. <laughs> and yeah, God has said, practicality think... in mind for sure. I'm sorry, but yeah, God definitely has that in mind too. He he, it just I think it also shows that he he knows that these things um, are important and he things have to be you know pure pressed olive oil would have would have lasted longer burned cleaner it would have been something to their advantage too sorry I didn't mean to interrupt but yeah I agree with you oh yeah yeah exactly and it and the best is none too good for our dear Lord <laughs> amen to that well uh Overall, as we look at this, next time we get together, it's going to be on the priest's garments. But as we look at everything we've covered so far, uh, anything else that's really standing out to you? Because it, God inspired Moses to write these things down for a reason. And it's not just so that they can continue them in their life because, you know, obviously they would have gotten the temple and then they would have moved on. We certainly don't have to be setting up tabernacles, but surely it still speaks to us today. 
Well, and and I think that um, we rejoice that we are God's people of the New Testament, that we have received in the uh, incarnation and birth of our precious Savior, that he who is greater than the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness and the uh, greater than the temple in Jerusalem, uh, that that he is um, the um, temple of God. Uh, just like he said uh, to uh, the Pharisees and, and his opponents, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He's the one who is the has uh, made himself a sacrifice once and for all on the cross. And uh, we, as God's New Testament people, uh, always have his presence in, in word and sacrament. And, and uh, he's there for all listeners uh, to trust in for their salvation and forgiveness. Yeah, just imagine, as people walk past, they would have seen inside that Holy of Holies, that uh, menorah, that that special lampstand. It would have been lit up. Even if they couldn't always see in, they'd see a flicker from there, reminding them that God was with them. And in this day and age, those curtains have been torn in twain, and we see very clearly the light of Christ. Um, what a what a beautiful message that we get here from Exodus, and I'm, I'm glad to have you today uh, helping us go through it. Um, we have like just a few minutes left, but I want to give those minutes to you, and I know that you just gave a nice message to folks, but here we are a week away from Christmas. Um, certainly, our eyes must be focused on both the coming of Christmas, which we celebrate with joy, but really, and I think more importantly, the return of Christ, the return of Christ at the end of the age, which we pray for constantly, especially in the world that's beset by so much sin. Um, here we have in this text a holy place, and now within our hearts and our minds, God has set up a new holy place for us. So just any Christmas messages or anything else you want to give to the people before we go? I just love uh, the words of Luther. Uh, he says um, that Look at uh, the, the child or the baby Christ uh, playing on his mother's lap. Uh, what can be lovelier than the babe? Or yeah, what can be sweeter than the babe or lovelier than the mother? Look at this infant that uh, knows nothing but owns everything, and your in your hearts will be encouraged by him. He says, uh, I think man's mankind's greatest con- uh, consolation is that. Uh, he became an infant, a babe, and played on his gracious mother's lap and suckled at her breasts. There are three miracles here. The first is that God became man. The second is that a virgin bore a child. And the third, that the human heart can believe it. And and how precious a an understanding of this uh, festival, or rather the feast, of the nativity of our dear Lord Jesus Christ is to us as we prepare for it through our hearing of the word and our celebrating during Advent. Amen. Thank you, Luther, and thank you to the Reverend David Boisclair, pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Pastor, I know I'm going to have you back. I look forward to it. Hey, it's always a wonder to be with you and, and with all the listeners that, that tune in. Thank you, brother. Now, folks, thank you, too, for ending your week with us. Why not start off next week with us, too? I will have the Reverend Professor David Duke on the show for Exodus chapter 28 as God's instructions focus on the garments of the priests. Are vestments that give witness to glory and beauty still important to God? Well, let's talk about it on Monday. 
Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.